welcome to the Mile 99 interview series with your hosts, Greg Larkin, Mike Turner, and Jessica Harris. Enjoy this episode, and we'll hope to see you on the trails soon. Welcome to the Mile 99 interview series. This is our 17th episode. Um, we're coming at you uh, from our homes as usual. And uh, every week or every few weeks, depending on schedule, we talk to a, uh, a different runner, ultra runner from our community and uh, typically find out what uh, makes them tick, um, where they've been, uh, you know, as they've, they've come to uh, find running and then getting into ultra running. Um, and those just generally hear about some stories and, and kind of like what makes them tick. And uh, tonight I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Jessica Harris. Hey, Jessica. Hello. And Mike Turner is on the call, but he is dialing in from a minivan that is heading to the Javelina 100 miler. And he, this, uh, let's see, about this time tomorrow, he will have just started his race and he'll be attempting to set a PR at the 100-mile distance with a sub-24 finish and a nice silver buckle at the end. So we're really pulling for him. Uh, oh not sure Not sure if he's going to unmute or join us. He, I know he's listening in, but uh, yeah, we're glad to have him as usual as well. Uh, so how have things been going with you, Jessica? Good. I'm so thankful for good weather and blue skies. Yes. Yeah, we had quite the stretch there with the smoke and the heat. Things are definitely feeling very fall-like, and I have to admit, I did turn the heat on in my house <laughs> the other day. So Just did I. Had, had to do it, you know. Yeah. Couldn't hold out till November 1st, but... <laughs> my kids were like, what's that smell? And I was like, oh yeah, that's the heater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you got to run at one time to just kind of yep. blow everything out, right? Yep. Uh, so... Looks like we got a great group tonight. Um, I'm sure we've got some people watching on Facebook Live. And just to kind of fill in everybody as we usually do that might be new to this uh, format, this is something that we started up back in May and it's just a way for us to kind of keep our ultra running community connected, inspired, motivated. We love sharing great stories with our guests and finding out what their achievements have been and what they're doing this year. Um, Jessica, uh, often is, is working, um, you know, with people on the chat room. Uh, so there's Zoom chat, there's the Facebook comments. Uh, we just love to have people interacting there and, and she um, talks to you all there. And if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to forward those to her. And then what we do at the end is we have like a little live Q&A session um, if anybody has any questions. Uh, so we're also streaming this live on the uh, on Facebook platform uh, on the Aid Station Trails and Ales site, and that is our local running slash beer store in here in downtown Auburn. Uh, friends of the show, um, love to support them. And uh, you know, anytime you're in Auburn, just drop in. If you need some gear, you want to pick up a beer and just uh, have some great conversation with anyone that's there at the time. Um, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Monsters of Massage. Uh, there are local extreme sports massage experts, and they're located in Newcastle, California. Um, these are great folks. I've been going there for several years. Um, they cured me of plantar fasciitis a couple of years ago. I had suffered with it for 18 months. And if you can deal with a little bit of pain, uh, they will definitely hook you up. Um, <laughs> I will say plantar fasciitis was a pretty, pretty rough go to get that fixed. Um, but I love going back there just for maintenance, pre-race, post-race. If you've got any kind of like nagging injuries this year, um, definitely look them up at uh, monstersofmassage.com. 
and tell them that Greg, Mike, and Jessica from the Mile 99 interview sent you. So tonight, uh, we are very happy to welcome Bob Crowley. Uh, he is a long-term ultra runner, a fixture in both the East Coast and the West Coast ultra running community. And he is the recently elected president of uh, the International Trail Running Association. So we're gonna dig in and hear all, all about his exploits, his race career, um, and what the, uh, the association is all about. So let us bring him in now. Uh-oh. Here he is. Is this, uh, is this my usual geriatric uh, group meeting book? <laughs> We're doing book reviews tonight, right? Yeah, that was the plan, right? I think okay. we, we all agreed to that ahead of time. Hi, everybody. Hey, welcome to the show, Bob. Glad to Thank have you, you tonight. It's, it's a, a, an honor to be here. Excellent. Really appreciate it. So, uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. Um, one thing that I noticed, uh, just kind of reading as, as we have often mentioned in the show, like we send out a little questionnaire to people that we have, and we just like to get a little bit of information, uh, that we can use to guide the interview here. And, and one of the things that I didn't realize is that you grew up in New York state and was that New York state or New York city? Just outside the city, about 40 miles, uh, in Westchester, Westchester County, it's Chappaqua, which is never been famous until the Clintons moved in. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So I was born in Binghamton, quote unquote, upstate New York. So maybe a few hours uh, north of that. But uh, yeah, it's always nice to, uh, you know, kind of hear about where people came from, what influenced them and that sort of thing. And I know that you also have strong ties to the Boston area. We're going to get into that as well. Um, and as a you know, native New Englander and New Yorker, it's it's really nice to uh, be able to kind of connect on that level as well. And I know we've got a lot to talk about in terms of uh, your involvement on the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, but one of the things maybe just to talk about quickly there is, um, you know, with those two trail running communities, um, you know, what, what's your experience been in sort of the West Coast versus the East Coast? And I'm not saying that to like pit them against each other necessarily, um, but, you know, can you kind of like compare and contrast their trail running scenes in those areas? I can try. Um, you know, 15, I guess about 15 years uh, in New England and very involved with the uh, Trail Animals Running Club, which I, I had the good fortune to get involved early and we grew it through the years um, and out here uh, in the Auburn area, really running with various groups and folks. Um, I, I think from a culture standpoint, community standpoint, they're very similar, you know, trail runners around the world. And I've had the privilege now of um, broadening my perspective to all the continents through International Trail Running Association. And, you know, trail runners um, have their own language. And, and even when you aren't speaking the the language of your your running partner, you can still have a perfectly fine few few hours on the trail together because there's another language that we all speak. You know the terrain's different. It's very um, rugged and choppy, less altitude, but more technical on the East Coast. You've heard that over and over. Sure. Um, and I and I think that New England trail runners. Um, Maybe it's because I more grew up there in my earlier years of trail running, tend to just be pretty low key. So they have these events called fat asses, which are free races. You bring your own aid, you take care of yourself. There are no permits, there's nothing. You know, if you drop, you, you know, need to take care of yourself. And that that is classic sort of Yankee rugged, you know, outdoors 
people that can deal with the super cold and the wind and the snow and, you know, eight months of miserable weather. And so they're pretty rugged um, people. And, I, and it's not to say that people aren't rugged out here, having spent enough time this year in the North Fork of the American River. <laughs> um, anybody that goes in there and comes out alive, it's rugged. But um, I, I just think it's, it's more of a melting pot here, um, honestly, on the West Coast of different personalities and people coming from all over the world. New England has that, but it tends to be more in academia. You don't see it as much, you know, as much um, kind of world diversity Hmm. there. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely um, my experience. I would say like, I mean, I started as we were talking before the show, like I started trail running in New England, not too long before I moved out here six years ago. So I was, you know, uh, only running there for, maybe a couple of years and it was in the early 2010s kind of time frame. And, and even then it seemed like people didn't even really know what a trail runner was. If I was up in the white mountains, I would probably be the only person out there running and hikers would see me running and say, well, what are you doing? You know? So it was kind of a, a different thing. Um, but then I came out here and there was this very established um, kind of environment. Now, of course I didn't connect with Tark, uh, which we'll get to later, um, and that would have been a great way to kind of foster the the East Coast uh, trail running scene, I'm sure. Uh, but backing up just slightly, I just also wanted to kind of initially touch on um, kind of your early uh, experiences, um, you know, what you sort of did to get into running um, and maybe early years, like back in like your school days and things like that. And then I know that you know, one of the ways that you sort of came into running was through ride and tie. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty short story, but happy to share it with you. The, um, when I was very young, probably fifth grade and younger, I was a very athletic, um, young boy and, and, and I had speed. Um, and then, you know, my, um, kind of DNA is such that when you get into your um, kind of middle school, high school years, we had some thyroid things. And so um, I put a lot of weight on. And part of that was just, I was lazy and I was um, overweight and eating a lot of crappy food, but, but I also had issues. And so I went through middle school and high school and I, I became, um, you know, one of the, what they call a Husky guys. And so my sports shifted from running to anything but running. So it's football, or um, wrestling, you know, or if it was spring and I was on the track team, it was shot put and, and hammer, not mm. running around the field. So, so it was punishment for us to, for someone like me to run. And uh, that's the end of the story. Um, and then really coming out of college, um, I, I, I did, did want to begin to get control of my, what seemingly then had become a fairly apathetic um, nutritional um, situation and, and it reflected in my weight. So, um, long story short, met, met, met some people out here in Fair Oaks, California that coaxed me out for a few mornings, you know, for 40 minutes. And, um, one thing led to another and that began to get my interest in running to help reduce my weight and get in shape. Um, and then that eventually through my business, um, dealings in Sacramento, uh, introduced me to someone that needed a partner for a ride and tie. And he knew I had been kind of running in the morning. So, um, that was Perry Edwards, Sally Edwards, um, uh, brother, Hmm. who is a 
an outstanding athlete in his own right. I don't know what's in that gene pool, but <laughs> want some athletes, go find some Edwardses. Um, <laughs> but the um, Perry said, I need a partner. I have a horse. I have me. I need a partner. And I didn't know what ride and tie was, and I'd never run on the trails. And that was probably 1990. Mm. And he's the one that got me convinced that I could run on the trails without breaking my leg. And I was already an equestrian. My wife, who's who's down in the in the middle corner, like the Brady Bunch, she <laughs> um, she and I met as as camp counselors at horseback riding camps. So I was comfortable being on a horse. Perry knew that. And so, long story short, we paired up. And ride and tie is two runners and a horse. Uh, the, the riders go off from a meadow, usually at the shot of a shotgun. Imagine a hundred horses all running at full gallop towards one goal. It's a single track trail at the end of the meadow and they all want to be first. It is an amazing thing to watch. The runners are standing next to the horses and we get all the dust. Uh, so way before COVID, it, it was cool to have bandanas and buffs up on your face because you choke <laughs> out otherwise. And then you go chasing after the horses and the horseback riders run up the trail. They tie the horse somewhere to a bush. That's the tie. They jump off and start running. And we finally catch the horse look at the number on their rear ends, which is our team number, jump on the horse and then go galloping to try to catch the guy that just went off running ahead of us. And that is the sport of ride and tie. It's a great sport. And that's, that's how I got introduced to trail running where uh, I think Tom Johnson and, and Tim Tweedmeyer and uh, Dan Barger and, and uh, Jim Howard, all these people that those of you that follow Western States endurance trail run, know that these are heroes of that um, infamous race, they were all riding tires first. And so they um, said to me, you know, there is this sport where you can just run, you don't have to have the horse. <laughs> and at the time that seemed just silly, but here we are. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah, I mean, I guess I never really researched riding that much. So I wasn't aware of the fact that, yeah, you kind of like kept swapping out the runners and, you know, kind of played that leapfrog game. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's a it's um, if you if you look on the West Coast uh, uh, ultra runners, the heritage is pretty deep in ride and tie. Mm. Gordy, by the way, sure, is yeah. another one. Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's not Gordy Howe, Jim Anderson. It's it's Gordy, the other guy, right? <laughs> My Boston contingent, right there. Oh yeah, yeah. So do we have some people in from Boston right now? staying up late for us. All right. Great. <laughs> Good to see you. Thanks for, thanks for joining. Uh, so then, um, you, you then moved to Boston, um, 1996, I guess. That's right. And, uh, at that time, uh, the Tark, uh, trail animals running club, uh, it, it, it was already formed, I guess at the time. Is that right? Had about 20 members. Yep. Okay. And so my understanding is then, well now, okay. Now, that grew to two orders of magnitude, over 7,000 members over the time that you spent in Boston and with your involvement in the club. Is that right? Um, I won't take any credit for the growth, but yes, that is, it went from 20 members to about 7,000 and we took 10 years off. So it really was from 2016, um, 2015. Well, let's see, probably, yeah, no. Yeah, I would say 2006, 2007, I'll put it earlier, but but we took some time off. We all had our families and other other priorities, but um, 
we, we just put a website up because we wanted to have partners to run with to train for Western States. We'd gotten in and it was back in the days when you could have the buddy system. So if one person got in, your partner also got in. Oh. Two of us had that opportunity. Four of us wanted to train, but we wanted other people to be out there with us. So we hung up a website, which I think my son Patrick built. Um, we, we learned how to do it together, but he kind of built it in HTML as a project. And um, we put everybody's emails and uh, phone numbers and addresses up at the time. <laughs> and uh, we, we weren't carried away by the feds for doing so. Yeah. And, and then just kind of laid it out there. And next thing you know, we had, you know, 10 people and we're like, great, now we have 30. This is terrific. And then um, we didn't do anything about it. And we had this place that these emails accumulated. And one day, I think six months later, we went in to look at it and there were like 400 emails and um, we had to reply to them all. And then that's when we got the bright idea of putting up the Facebook page. And from then it was uh, crazy. So yeah, it's a wonderful club, the, the most dear people in the world. Um, and, and they will give you the shirt off their back and the shoes off their feet to help any trail runner. It's a, mm. it's a wonderful community. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, whenever my next trip back to New England is to visit my family, I mean, I definitely want to uh, look them up. Um, I know of a few of them. Um, just, you know, I think we were talking before the show, like my first race of any significant distance was the Wapak uh, trail race. I did the, the 21 and a half mile, not the full 50 out and back or anything. And I think several TARC members, um, you know, were at that race. I think uh, one of them won it um, that year. I know Josh Katzman was there and he's, he's a real prominent uh, member of the, of the club, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it seems like they, they do a lot of great work out there and it's just, it's kind of amazing to me that there's, you know, 7,000 members at this point. I mean, and are they, are they coming from all over the country or the world or is it pretty much limited to new England? It's um, it's primarily new England, but, but they do, you know, we have uh, members from, you know, Hong Kong and, and South America and, and into Africa because students come over mm -hmm. right, to attend uh, Harvard or MIT or any of the other fine universities. There are oh, sure. 40 plus of them in the vicinity of Boston. Um, and, and so they're athletes and they look for clubs. Our club is free. So we get a lot of people that will join for a few years and then go back to their homes and, and still stay in touch. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great network. And I mean, yeah, it just speaks to the community of ultra runners, I think. And, you know, we have, we have that out here, as you know, um, and people, you can just kind of show up and you run into people and you just start running with them. And like you said, you, you speak that common language. Um, and then after a few hours on the trail, you, you, you just get to know people. Um, and so it sounds like the club really fosters that. That's, that's a great thing to see. Um, and so what was your role specifically in the club and, and kind of like through that growth period? You know, I was just around, it was just timing. And so I, we, we took turns doing the newsletters, which were manually first, and then we did them online and taking pictures and doing race reports. And each of us kind of were better at one or the other. So three or four of us divided the work up. And then really once we took the time off um, with families and when we came back, there were just three of us. Um, and I agreed to, to, to work with Patrick, um, our son to, to build the website. And then one of the other guys maintained it. And, um, and then soon thereafter, we, we, we moved over to the um, Facebook platform. And, and that's really when things kind of the rock and roll. And then I partnered with Josh 
to build the trail series. There's 11 races every year from hundred milers down to, you know, 10 Ks. And so, um, we, we process about four to 5,000 runners a year through our races and they're coming from all over new England usually. Yeah. And now there's a sort of infamous winter race, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's called the frozen Yeti. (laughs) (laughs) What can you tell us about that for all of us warm blooded folks out here that don't really race below 40 degrees? (laughs) Yeah. Well, those of you that have lived in, in Jim's Jim, I know, um, you know, you just never know what you're going to get. It's, it's like Forrest Gump and the box of chocolates, right? Um, any given day in new England in the winter, it can be balmy and it can be 20, you know, degrees or, or around zero and just blowing snow sideways and awful wet to, to flaky and everything in between. So that race is in February. It's on the Hale reserve, which is a beautiful area, piece of land, but it's hilly and it's technical. And so if there's just a little hint of snow, it's super slippery and there's all the rocks exposed. So you're going to trip over all of them and the roots. If there's um, heavy snow, you know, it's a slog. It's really hard to run through it. And if it's medium, it covers all the rocks and the roots, but it's like a slip and slide. So you just never know what you and you could have a muddy course, which this past year it was a mud course, which has its own challenges. So it's just kind of a a, a gritty New England. Like if you really want to go out and test your metal and see if you're um, in the ballpark of ever being called a New Englander, that's a good race to go out and do because if you can finish it, you, you know it's a it's a notch on your belt. Yeah, that sounds good. I wonder if I still have the cold resistance. I don't know. Like I've been out here six years and (laughs) I might be losing it at this point. I'm not sure. There's a remedy for that, Greg. Yeah. (laughs) I'll sign up for the next edition. (laughs) Most of it comes out of uh, Kentucky, you know, that area, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Very true. Oh, nice. Um, so, uh, so like going into then like your race career, um, one of the things I was just looking through ultra sign up, I noticed that, uh, you know, either during the time you were living back East or after you, you moved back here, like you've really had a lot of finishes at uh way too cool 50 K. And, um, what can you tell us about your attraction to that race? Um, yeah, it was my first ultra and, um, it was the same people that coaxed me somewhat into ride and tie and then into trail running that they just threw me at that one um back uh, 1990 91 and um it happened to be a year where it was just a sloppy muddy god-awful mess and it was bitterly cold and i had no training and i had no idea what i was doing so it's like someone taking you someone taking you to uh, snow skiing alpine skiing saying you'll be fine put the skis on you leave you at the top of the the mountain and say, we'll see you at the bottom. That was my first experience, uh, in eighth grade skiing in ski club <laughs> at Pat's peak in New Hampshire with all my friends who were expert skiers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of those East coast, uh, ski resorts are devilish because they put the lodge at the top of the mountain. Yes. That's where you rent your gear. And so you're already up there. You have nowhere to go, but down anyways. Um, 
so that's that's you know that's that's the story there that it, it's um you know it is a, a nasty mean kind of fun and the community comes out and, and the amount of support that you get if you if you take on something like the uh you know the frozen yeti is all these people are just amazingly in your corner you know when you do thaw out and you see them at, <laughs> at an aid station absolutely now uh we did post a picture on our Facebook page of a somewhat famous mud dive of yours last year, I believe, uh, not 2020, but 2019 at the way to cool. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure like I was at the finish line and I heard a bunch of yelling and I looked over and I saw somebody kind of like completely covered with mud. I don't know if I saw the actual event take place, but it wasn't clear to me. Did this guy trip or what happened there? And somebody, I think I didn't realize it was you at the time and said like, yeah, he just went head first. Like, what was that all about? Yeah, I think that was my 18th uh, way to cool or what was cool Canyon crawl back in the day. And it was one of those epically awful muddy days. And so I was reminiscing about the first and thought, well, it would be only appropriate if, if there was a mud puddle available. And thankfully, as I came around the corner, it just, it appeared out of nowhere. And so um, had to, had to finish the race properly. I was way too clean coming into that point. <laughs> I think you did it in style. I was poking through your uh, your Facebook photos and there's kind of like a time lapse of like every inch as you fall towards the puddle and then boom. <laughs> yeah, so ironically, uh, um, given our conversation about the East Coast, West Coast, it was a fellow from Boston that happened to be out visiting friends and uh, he snapped the picture hmm. or series of pictures and it turned out he came to me at the finish line and he, he said, I have these pictures. And I, he showed them to me and went, oh, that's really, you know, that's phenomenal that you got them. But I thought that was the end of it. Well, he turned out to be a very good friend of my niece, who's a running coach in Connecticut. And she texted, he texted her the pictures saying, aren't these cool pictures I got at this race? And she texted him back and said, that's my uncle <laughs> in the world of small worlds. So very nice. I'm oh, sorry. I had to mute there for a second. My cat was having a sneeze attack. <laughs> We're low budget here, you know? <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the beauty of a broadcasting hey, career living. Better, here, better right? her than you, Greg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you've, I mean, you've obviously, you know, you've done so many finishes at the 50 K distance, you know, looking through your ultra sign up. I mean, you've got like 80 plus finishes and ultras, um, but you've also taken on as some of the people we've talked to as well, some like beyond hundred milers. I mean, you've got multiple hundred mile finishes, but then you've also got multiple 200 mile plus finishes. And, you know, those include the Tahoe 200, um, the Moab 240, uh, the Tour de Géant, which is, I believe, 330 kilometers. Is that right? That's what they say. Yeah. And, uh, so Talk to us a little bit about kind of like your evolution of, you know, kind of what, let's call them quote unquote standard ultra distances to like the beyond ultra distances maybe. And uh, like, what was your initial attraction to that distance? And, you know, what's your, you know, what's your plan going forward uh, with those longer races? Um, you know, for most of my ultra running, it's been about 30 years. Um, there, there really just was the 50 K distance or 50 miler. And then occasionally there were very few 100s. I think there were 10 um, 
through most of my, you know, thirties and forties. So, you know, that's just what we did. Those happened to be the distances available either out here in California and in, um, back East in new England. Um, it, it, it hasn't been except the last 10 years where I think American trail runners have, have begun to be aware of, of racing outside the United States. Um, so the notion of going across state lines or getting on an airplane and going to a race, that sort of broadened out in the knots from t- sort of 2000, 2010. But from 2010 to 2020, there have been more and more Americans going overseas, South America, Europe, all over the place, Asia, to, to race and combined experience of maybe a vacation, you know, combined with racing. That, that was never going on. And so the awareness of, of, of a more global footprint and what other people are doing and that with the uh, combined with the Western states opening the, the qualifying to a much more global world and conforming to the 100K distance, which is outside the United States, much more common than a, than a 50 miler, for instance. Hmm. Then, um, you know, all of that has opened us up in the last 10 years to really a global footprint in trail running. And, um, you know, we, I, I've had the privilege of kind of living through all of those evolutions and it's been very, very exciting. And that, you know, that includes, I think 15% growth year over year for the last 15 to 20 years straight for trail running, which means it's the only segment of running that's growing in the world. All other segments are flattened down and trail running as a result of COVID and the number of people that are discovering the outdoors, either because they have to, or because they, they got out and found this is way better than hanging out inside. Um, we're, we're estimating at ITRA, you know, probably a 15 to 20% growth this year, and then that will be maintained. So the sport's doing nothing but um, having massive growth. And, and then that, that really then opens up all of the aspects of the distances and also the different disciplines around the world. So, you know, trail running, although our cultures are very similar globally, the techniques and, and the skills, my running along mostly Europeans in Tour de Giants in the, um, in the Italian Alps, it's absolutely stunning how um, the Italians and the French and the Swiss float over the most technical and most steep terrain um, and, and where we're you know picking our way through it as if you know we're, we're injured they're floating over it and it's for real I you know saw it so many times and it's a wonderful thing and so you know any opportunity you can get to learn from the masters you learn. And then, you know, when they come uh, stateside, they have compliments and things that they they've never encountered, like the heat. Um, in some cases, some of our glaciers um, and, and some of the altitude they're not accustomed to. And so they're, they're as enamored with coming to the States and learning from the locals as we are. And, and that's, I, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing to see our, our community, you know, grow um, that way in, and, and it includes, by the way, we, we now have statistics in ITRA. You know, we track all sorts of things, but one of the things, of course, we're tracking is the mix of men and women. And it, there's a threefold growth in women coming into the sport. 
So it's only a matter of time that, that things will even up. We don't know when, you know, maybe it's five years, but the speed at which the, the amount of women that are coming in the sport is, um, out, is it, it's outstanding. That's great to hear. Yeah. And so speaking of ITRA, I mean, yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, one of the questions, you know, as we get into it was, was going to be me asking you a little bit about some of the statistics and we can dive into that a little bit more, but, um, first of all, you're now the president of the, of the association. So congratulations on that. That's a, a great accomplishment. I would think to, you know, it's, it's a international organization. It's not based in the U S but now we have a, you know, person from the United States as the president. So can you kind of describe, um, you know, what the organization is, what your initial involvement with it was, uh, and then how you kind of, you know, got into the position of president? Uh, well, yeah, well, thank you. First of all, it is, a, it, I'm very honored and humbled to have this opportunity. We have not had a uh, American president uh, of ITRA, which has been in existence about eight years. Um, so it's an honor to, to be that first um, non-European president. And uh, it's based in Switzerland with offices in Chamonix, uh, France. And we, we represent about 150,000 members, people that are signed up and about 3,700 races around the globe. But our database is 1.8 million runners. So um, that's about the size, of, you know, rounded to 2 million. There are about 2 million trail runners in, in the world. And our mission is, is really to do one thing and one thing only, which is to, to um, teach the values of our trail running community. So we observed years ago that other sports, triathlons, a good example, mountain bikings and other that grew so rapidly and became so popular so quickly were started by very small groups with very strong cultures. Rock climbing could be another example. And then when there's explosive growth, um, a lot of um, profiteering um, comes in, understandably, and, and that sort of dispenses with whatever the value systems were and they get lost somewhere in the shuffle, never to be returned. We're really trying hard in trail running to keep the things that got us to the point where we are the only growing segment in the world in running. And it's because it's the community and the culture and the values. So as much as we want the growth, we also need to do it responsibly. And that's our job. Our job at ETRA is to make sure that as people come into the sport, we help the countries and we help the federations and we help the runners get introduced to the sport, but we also teach them, you know, how to behave so that um, hopefully they can teach others in their small groups how to behave. And that way we don't get trampled on as we grow and lose our way. And that's, that's ETRA's goal. That's excellent. I mean, that, that sort of reminds me of, um, I was a bike racer and I've mentioned this on the show before um, starting off when I was a teenager in the mid eighties. And at the time there were, you know, various factions, like there was the United States Cycling Federation, there was Norma, the National Off-Road Bicycle Racing Association, those kind of merged at one point, but then you also had the Olympic committee issues with, because cycling was an Olympic sport. Um, so there were like lots of competing kind of tensions there, I think. And while trail running doesn't have an Olympic representation, it sounds like you have an opportunity to kind of mold things and, and sort of foster things 
you know, in a, in a much more grassroots way, even though you're a larger organization overseeing a lot of different countries and, and um, race organizers? I mean, is that a fair assessment? That's, that's what we aspire to do is to really move the, the movement, which is teaching the values down to the local clubs, the running clubs, the, the, the state and the local and regional federations. That's where it belongs. That's, you know, if you put it into a religious context, it's most effective local. And values are really, you know, they're, they're, they're not concrete. They're just ways to behave and practice and try to preserve certain cultures um, over the long haul. And so it's a tough topic sometimes, and it's much better uh, conveyed amongst people you trust and that you respect. And so that's really where we, we, our movement is to move it deeply into the field. Nice. And do you have um, specific methods, I guess, for working with race organizers? And if you do, like, do you ever get pushback? You know, do they feel like, oh, this is another, or not another, but a bureaucracy of some sort that I don't really want to be involved in? Like, how do you handle those different issues? Well, we've, we've found that um, post-World War II, the most effective way to get really into the creases in all the local uh, centers is to use napalm. So we're big fans of napalm. We just put our own little, you know, recipe on it so that, you know, once it sinks in and, and is absorbed, they understand the values intrinsically. That that has attracted some social media negativity, I must say. And so we've had to put that whole project on hold. Um, no napalm for now. Got it. Um, but but um, we, we do find some resistance if if a federation or a club, you know, gets gets worried that we're coming in and trying to set the rules, which we have no authority to do, or that we're somehow going to try to want to take a piece of whatever pie they have. Once they understand, we're just here to kind of like share the good news and move on to the next uh, settlement, right? Mm -hmm. Th then that, that seems to just tamp all that down. That's, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, because of the way trail running evolved, you know, very grassroots and very much at the local level. Um, yeah, you might you might see a little bit of resistance if somebody comes in and sort of, you know, hey, we've got this organization and we can kind of help you see the light. And they might think, well, we already see the light. You know, why do we need this? Um, but it sounds like you have. I mean, obviously, with the number of years you've been involved also, like you have that perspective from, you know, that those early days when things were very much grassroots. And I'm sure that must bring to bear, you know, some validation, you know, coming uh, from you as the president of this newer organization. I, I'd, I'd like to think that's the case, but in the United States, it's not. And, and it's because we've had trail running for 40 plus years and it grew up as a grassroots, mostly charities runs and, you know, uh, good causes that were local. And so I, I liken it to, um, you know, herd of Mustangs, you know, American trail runner race directors and trail runners are like Mustangs and mm -hmm. there is no one in the world that's going to corral them. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, the, the, even, even though we're just about values, which is pretty innocuous, there's still plenty of resistance or maybe not a, a perception that there's enough value mm -hmm. in ETRA for us to become a member. I'm hoping to change that in my term, but it's not an easy task. And our most discerning uh, customer, if you will, is the United States. And so our goal is if we can convince, find ways in which we can create value at ETRA for, for our brethren right here, 
we can probably take on the rest of the world. So we'll see. Yeah. What are some of the benefits that, that you would offer then? You know, the biggest thing for, for um, an, let's talk about an American athlete is we offer um, the kind of insurance that you can't get with your American Express credit card or your trip insurance or your healthcare, because you're going off into maybe dangerous places doing extraordinary things. And most insurance um, fine print says, yeah, yeah, that doesn't count. So if you fall off a cliff or you need a helicopter evac, that's on your dime, your time. We offer the insurance to cover that and we offer it at a pretty, pretty serious discount. So you have to be a member to get at it. That's mm-hmm. a that's a probably the most valuable thing. If if you're gonna go um, race somewhere outside the United States, in particular, they may require that you have the insurance. If not, it would be kind of naive not to get it. Yeah, that makes a lot. So of- that's an example. You know, we do rating. We have every of those 1.8 million trail runners. We rank them all from one to 1.8 million just like the uh, U S tennis association has their rankings and, you know, uh, USA uh, track and field has theirs, et cetera. We have uh, world rankings for athletes based upon a, an algorithm. And um, that algorithm takes into consideration more things than I want to talk about and would bore everyone with, but it's a very sophisticated 10 year old um, algorithm that ultimately ranks all of the women and all of the men and that's used by race for seating or invitationals, or in some cases for sponsors uh, to, you know, uh, have sponsored athletes, et cetera, et cetera. It's used considerably. So that's another benefit where if you're a member, you can not only get access to all that, but then you, we have tools where you can um, essentially pit yourself against other people and see how you'd rank and rate. And although that's not necessarily my, um, that doesn't, you know, swizzle, swizzle, my dwizzle. Um, (laughs) there are a lot of people that love that stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, I was going to say my fingers are on the keyboard probably right after this show, like how do I compare (laughs) against so-and-so or whoever? (laughs) Um, and you've got, you know, records from, you know, millions of of runners. You said, is that, um, by harvesting like race results or did they have to self-register or how did that work? Yeah, we, we harvest almost 4,000 races a year and then categorize them. And we lay, you know, distance and terrain levels of difficulty. We, we add, to it and enhance it. And then that pumps into the algorithm that pumps out your ranking. So, and it's, it's, uh, yeah. So we have, we have really good, um, tools for people that really enjoy that. And of course we have, I think the most comprehensive listing and and calendars of races around the globe. So if you want to find something, we're a pretty good resource for that. Very cool. And just to confirm the website in case anybody's interested is itra, I-T-R-A dot run. Is that correct? Yep. All right. Perfect. Yeah. So anybody that's interested, definitely go check that out. I believe, um, you know, I, I somehow got some points to, to register for CCC a couple of years ago. And I believe part of that process was you had to go to itra, set up a profile or claim your profile so that they had kind of the de facto standard yeah, we, of who you were is that i think you can be points are each of points okay they're our invention and you can call them what you want as a race director but behind the scenes they're all ours 
Right. All right. So, I mean, you've got a good connection into the European race scene. It sounds like you're working on breaking the Mustangs in the U.S. as well. <laughs> um, and so what do you see kind of like as your tenure? Well, first of all, how long is your tenure? And then what do you see as your major goals? You know, you mentioned something about, you know, getting more involved in the U.S. as well. But like, what are some of the, the main other goals that you see during your uh, your time? Um, the, the term is four years, but I, I, I actually uh, assumed the role in April because our, our sitting president resigned um, somewhat abruptly. So I was, um, you know, there, there wasn't there wasn't a secession system in place. And so we had to do a reelection and all that. So I've been in since April and I'll go for, you know, through this year and then it'll be, uh, I think, two more years. Excellent. And then do you have the goals? The goals simply are we have to improve the services we offer runners and organizers in order to compel them to maybe give us, you know, eight, 10 euro, eight, eight, 10 bucks a year. I mean, it's not a lot, but if you, if we can get, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people to do that, we can pay the bills. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would encourage everybody to go check out the website, um, see what your profile looks like, see how you stack up. Um, the insurance offer for sure. I mean, that, that sounds like a great idea. And since you mentioned the North Fork early on in the show, I know that you and I were both at the Euchre Bar Massacre. I don't think we saw each other at the start or anything, um, but there's an example of going out into kind of the wild and you never know what's going to happen out there. And it's a good idea to have some protection in, in those areas. And certainly, like you said, overseas. I mean, that's just, yeah, that just makes sense. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> You never know what the North Fork is going to bring. Uh, that's one thing that we've learned this summer. <laughs> I don't think great. I don't think Lloyd's of London would provide insurance <laughs> for the North Fork. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting year, as we've also discussed on some previous episodes, because we've just been able. A lot of us have been able to go out and just do some more exploration and and that kind of thing. Um, how how did you enjoy that race, by the way? Oh, uh, wonderful! Uh, on the on the you know Sean's great, and it's a. Uh, it's as close to a New England race we'll ever going to see out here on the West Coast because it's free and it's simple and it's hard and you, you got to take care of yourself. All of the things unmarked, you know, better, yeah. better know how to read topo maps and use a compass and all that stuff. Um, but on the on the topic of, of exploration, because I think all of us, you know, have had to find creative ways to keep our our mental and physical selves busy. Um, I, I will mention that as a result. Um, the re real reason I was at Euchre Bar was it was sort of a training run and it's for a little adventure that um, Tim, Tim Tweetmeyer, some of you that know me know that we're very old friends and, and uh, Tim and I have been working for seven years on a, a historical research project. We both share a passion in ultra running, but also in history, American history in particular, and in this case, American Western history. And so we've spent uh, seven years researching a topic that we thought would be uh, really more of a physical challenge for us. So discover a trail and then um, plot it out and then go do it, right, just for fun. And that was the, the impetus, but, but now it's gotten to the point where, where the people that actually did this, that we've researched, um, we've become so intrigued with them that it's really become more about the people that we're sort of emulating, if not going to honor, than it is uh, the route. But anyways, it's called the Forlorn Hope uh, Expedition. 
Forlorn Hope were, were 15 people that left the Donner Party in 1846 and tried to save, get over the mountains and get help at Sutter Fort to, to let them know that the rest of the party, 80 people were trapped back at the lake. And these 15 brave people were all were mothers and, and, and fathers and sons and daughters, leaving uh, spouses, children, loved ones at the lake, knowing that they were putting their lives in danger on foot, trying to, to mix this treacherous crossing in the, in the midst of the mid, middle of a uh, Sierra winter. Uh, of the 15, uh, only seven survived. And so this trip, we're, what we're doing is we've been researching for seven years, uh, where, where did they go? Because they got lost. And what was supposed to be a seven-day trip was a 33-day trip. And they got lost in the North Fork of the American River. Ah. And so um, Tim and I have plotted the course, and we've now finished the research. And, and December 16th, which will be the 174th anniversary of, of the Forlorn Harp leaving um, the eastern shores of Donner Lake, We'll head out and, uh, and it's about 90, 90 to 100 mile trip. And we're gonna put it all together, hopefully in the snow. So it's much more realistic and uh, kind of record record it. It'll be, it'll be live uh, in reach satellite, but, but you know, as, as we do it and it's a hike and it's an honor hike, um, you know, we're gonna take the time to really reflect on these remarkable people. So. It's, it all comes back to the North Fork because it's the most treacherous part of our journey in snowshoes. That sounds absolutely incredible. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm pretty blown away. I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners are as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely going to want to follow that live uh, and see where that goes. December 16th, you said. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll put something out to, to your site, you know, the, the yeah. and a few others uh, once we once we uh you know sort all that stuff out oh i'm sure we're gonna ask you back after that for uh for a recap <laughs> if, if you have uh, time. You really should ask tweet back because his he's his feelings were hurt already that you haven't already asked him. oh darn <laughs> so i didn't invite him to come on like shame him to come on tonight which of course he won't do <laughs> probably you know giving jet a bath or something yeah story. yeah but well, anyway but no it won't be me it'll be tim that you and and you'll be paying for it. Gotcha. <laughs> you got to learn the ropes here. <laughs> oh, wow. And so do you, um, what is the, the finish point? Do you have a finish point? Like, yeah, specific? it goes from Donner Lake uh, and it comes up and over the Donner Pass and then kind of follows uh, Highway 80 actually for, mm. for some time. And then they went left. So they went into the, the throat of the North Fork of the American River um, where the rest of the overland went right into Bear Valley and then down to a town called Wheatland, which mm -hmm. you, if you know the area kind of above Lincoln, Wheatland is where Johnson's Ranch was, which is a very small adobe house, but it's where uh, all the people emigrating to California would come into uh, Johnson's Ranch and then go the last 40 miles to Sutter Fort in Sacramento. So we will terminate at Johnson's Ranch because the, the seven survivors uh, that did this 33 day, 90 plus um, um, sojourn at, at the very end um, had been starved four times for up to five days each time. 
and um, they had handmade uh, snowshoes out of, of, of oxbow and, and, and boughs and, and rawhide. Their feet were bloody. They, they were destroyed. These were destroyed people. So in the end, they were, you know, going 200 yards, leaving blood in their tracks. And so at the very, very end, the grim, the grimness of this Johnson ranch, um, is, it's quite a tale, but they made it and that's where they, they terminated the, their trip. And that's where we will end. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. That is going to be something else to follow and hear about for sure. Um, just, uh, you know, inspirational stuff. I mean, you've done some, some huge runs, um, and I'm sure this is all great to prepare for something like this. Um, can you draw a little bit of a parallel from like, say the Tour de Géance race to something like this? Does that help you prepare mentally or physically, or is it just a completely different beast? Um, I think on, on, the, on gaining confidence in your abilities, yes, they, they help each other, but that's kind of where the similarities and because Tour de Giants, you know, was almost nine, I think it was 90, 95,000 feet of vertical gain and, you know, 230 some odd miles, uh, most of it at altitude in the Alps with some pretty, you know, difficult terrain that, that and, you, and you were on a deadline. You know, you had a, and so that, that, that you are racing, you can't just let up. Um, you, you got to keep going. The journey that Tim and I, and, and, um, we'll, we'll have two women with us as well. The team is still finalizing, so I'm not going to announce who they are, but the well-known and the four of us will really, um, will trek. We're going to have packs and snowshoes and, you know, we're going to, we're going to be moving hard, but um, that's not the goal. This is not an FKT. This is not a race. This is not any of that. It's really, you know, to, to honor uh, these people by um, doing a reprise, if you will, of what they did so long ago. Very cool. But yeah, just having that confidence, like you say, you know, pushing yourself um, to some extremes and then being able to kind of translate that into any other type of adventure, you know, that you choose to do um, sounds like, you know, a really good investment. Um, and how, you know, like over, I guess over your career, you know, as you've kind of grown in distances and all of that, like, yeah, how, what has your evolution been like gaining that confidence and, and kind of realizing how far you can push yourself and maybe have you figured out where your limits are yet? And, you know, what do you do when you hit them? Is there any advice you can give to people kind of as they try to grow in their career and the racing career and distances and all of that? Yeah, I, I think the advice is to to continue to um, be confident in yourself, listening to yourself, because um, we all have other priorities in life that that um, need to be attended to at times. So as we go through an evolution of a running career, if you will, um, there's different demands in our lives, in our personal lives and careers, and and things that happen that we don't expect um, emotionally or physically, and and so. You know, I think you have to let it come to you. And for me, at some point, uh, I wasn't going to get any faster doing any 50Ks or 100 miles or 50 miles. And I'd done them. And I'd done the ones I, I, I really wanted to do. And so, um, I, but I still wanted to be doing this. And so that, that is how I, I move towards the longer distances where I can be slower, but I can play to my strength of mental discipline 
and not sort of giving up and, um, and being a fairly good mover, I can move quickly and I can be fairly efficient in aid stations and I'm a big planner. Mm. The harder the race, the more complicated it is, the more it plays to my favor because planning in those cases are mandatory. You, You can't be going out and doing these things, you know, sort of on a whim. So, so, um, it, 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 again, it, it complements things that I can still take advantage of, um, as my body starts to not behave. Um, you know, there's other parts, aspects of our sport, um, that are equally important and can be refined without having to all, all be, you know, at your physical peak. And I think that's the intellectual stimulation of that. And then what Tim and I are doing is kind of taking it to an completely different level now because we're really engaged in in the research and the people and so you have all these other aspects that almost makes the doing it and and i'm not being flippant but we have tim and i have said the last couple of weeks on some tough field reconnaissance we come up out of that hill and we're like gassed we're like you know at some point we are going to have to find some time to train for this thing right? (laughs) right um but but i don't say that flippant um, but, but it's, it's way down the list of things, you know, which kind of s- sounds strange, sounds strange me saying it and probably to you hearing that, but so who knows where we all evolve. It's just like nutrition. You can't just mass tell people what to eat. It's, it, it really depends upon their systems. I think the same thing happens in trail running where you evolve. Um, I hope that most people find that they can do it for the majority of their life if they want to. They can, but you have to listen to your body and you have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of the people around you that, that support you to allow you to do these things. So it's, it's an ecosystem. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's really great advice too. I mean, for me personally, I kind of came into the sport late, you know, in my mid forties, um, now getting to my fifties and, and what you said about just having all those different facets of the sport beyond your just physical training and all of that, the planning aspect, I'm sure if I think Mike had to drop because they're probably checking into their hotel down there in Arizona, but he will attest that I'm not always the best planner. And I tend to wing things a little bit too much sometimes prior, prior to a race and during a race, he's a much better planner, I think than me. But for me, like my challenge is probably going to be learning that skill as I age to kind of make up for some of the other areas where things might you know, not be as you know efficient, or I might like not may may not be going as quickly as I used to, or something like that. But it sounds like you can make up some of that just by spending a little more time on the the mental side, the planning side, and all of that. Well, uh, I got to warn you: you have to because you can't remember one day to the next. <laughs> <laughs> right, already experiencing that. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure why I'm here. <laughs> We're going to do a you? quick recap. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. So is there a, um, a website or Facebook page or anything like that, that you've set up for that, that effort, or is this kind of the first time you've really talked about it in a, in a larger way? Uh, no, there's, there's nothing set up. Um, that's probably mostly because Tim and I aren't, um, terribly savvy at all that stuff, but, um, I, there is interest in the historical societies, particularly out here in Cal, you know, on the, the, you know, Utah, Oregon, Washington, California, Nevada. There's also some interest in, in the media from the local areas, just because Donner, Donner equals, you know, sort of the Tahoe region. And, and that's a, if you, we did a fun experiment to do 
kind of Google hits and we did obvious things and stars and politicians and topics and, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits. Donner got 80 million hits mm. just for Donner party. That's astounding, which shows kind of the stick to 175 years later, the interest in it, maybe for the wrong reasons. Mm hmm. Uh, is fairly pervasive. So, so as a result of Donner, there is there's some media, but I'm sure we'll figure something out. We'll, we'll be sure to get you guys whatever links we have. Uh, yeah. So that, um, yeah, it'll it'll be great if we can help you. You know, get the word out afterwards or before again, before or after, however you want to do it. We'll be absolutely happy to do that for sure. No well, problem. I, um, just wrap up uh, tonight with um, you would in our questionnaire, put a little bit of advice to some new runners. I've got it here. I could read it off or, or if you remember it, you could, you could state it. But um, if you don't mind, I just wanted to kind of like throw that out there for some folks just uh, as a way to kind of help them figure some things out. Do you, would you like me to read it? Uh, you better. All right. <laughs> well, in his words, um, some of the advice, uh, you know, tonight uh, that Bob can share is, um, you know, we like to ask this, you know, how, how, what would you advise, you know, new runners getting into the sport or you're or sort of trying to, you know, become more involved in it or, or better at what you do, uh, as a, as a trail runner. And, uh, he would say, start simple, uh, discover the joy of the trails in small groups or alone, uh, know and practice the community values, uh, give as much as you take, if not more, uh, be humble, be grateful, and don't be a, let's call it a jerk. <laughs> So, uh, I think that's, wow, that's great. That's my first, my first zoom sensor. Yeah. You know, otherwise I got to put the explicit tag on the episode and things just go downhill from there. I understand you have sponsors. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I, I mean, I see the value in that. Um, you know, I, I pretty much the, you know, I'll, I'll tell you like the way I discovered trail running was I was hiking up um, Mount Moose Lock in New Hampshire, probably in the early nineties. And I saw this crazy group of kids at the time running up and down the mountain. Well, come to find out it was the Dartmouth ski club. And this was kind of their yearly traditional mountain time trial. And as a hiker, I was just blown away by these people running in sneakers, like down this ridiculously technical trail. And you know, it just kind of inspired me. It didn't happen immediately, but like years later, that's what really I realized was the germ of like getting interested in this. And, and it was just such a very like organic thing that I saw. And when I got out on the trails myself, it, it just felt like this primordial kind of connection. I don't know how to describe it. Um, but I've always, you know, kind of hoped that people see that sort of thing when they're out on the trails and just can appreciate where they're at, what their bodies can do for them. Um, and no matter how fast, slow, walk, run, whatever you're doing, you're outside, you're enjoying that. Uh, I think that's just a, a great thing. And it sounds like you've tapped into that, you know, throughout your career as well. There it is. Yeah. And it's, look, uh, I'm going to say this because it's um, increasingly a concern as it pertains to the growth, but it's easy it's easier for us men to say that it's not as easy for uh, women and it's not as easy for people that are, you know, of color because it isn't always safe. So let's, that's, that's something we all have now additionally to keep in mind. Mm, thank you very much for bringing that up. Very important topic. And that's, 
definitely been something that's been, you know, in the community, especially in the last, you know, four to six months that uh, we should all be aware of and be as welcoming as we can to people of, you know, all backgrounds. Um, you know, the sport is growing very quickly. As you mentioned, the trends are there. Um, it's, it's one of the areas of, of growth. Um, so I think we can all be excellent ambassadors to anybody that's coming into the sport. And so hopefully ETRO will facilitate us, uh, you know, doing that as well. And uh, yeah, we're really excited to see what the next five to 10 years bring. Me too. All right, Bob. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. I uh, hope everybody's enjoyed it. Um, I do want to give another quick plug to uh, the Auburn Aid Station. Please uh, come by and drop in, say hi, gear, beer, all that good stuff. And again, Monsters of Massage. Uh, we're just doing this just to get their name out there. We love those guys. Um, really uh, want to support them throughout this pandemic. I know a lot of these businesses have been hit hard. Uh, so whatever you can do, whether it's them or your local running store, whoever, uh, give them that support, show them some love, and uh, we'll all get through this and get back on the trails in our previous glory. So uh, yeah, thanks again, Bob. Stick around a little bit afterwards here, if, if you don't mind, and uh, we'll all see you uh, again. Thank you for joining another episode of the Mile 99 interview, and take care, and we'll see you on the trails. Bye-bye.